Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. We're glad to have you with us. If you would just bow your heads with me once more before we dive into God's word. Lord, we thank you for the goodness of your word and its sufficiency for all of life. We pray today, Lord, that as we um, look at specific commands which are timely in our world and uh, intention in our hearts, that you give us uh, grace to see, know, hear, repent, respond, live, love, and uh, do everything else out of a submission to your glory in all things. Um, Lord, we are people who are wholly reliant upon you. And every Sunday we remind ourselves of that as we gather together to be encouraged by one another um, and by uh, all the things that accompany your church. So we pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, If you don't have your Bibles open, open them up to 1 Peter. Uh, We're in the last part of chapter 2 today. Um, If you were to look up online the origin of the word atheist, you would find that it gained most of its traction and kind of took root culturally in the 16th century in what is now kind of the modern day atheistic movement. That's the worldview that there is no God or gods who exist or who created the world. But you might find it interesting that the term atheist actually way predates the 16th century. And it might be more interesting to us as Christians to know that One of the early people groups culturally referred to as atheists were actually the early Christian church. You see, in the New Testament era, the Roman emperors were seen as divine gods. So as Christians were converted to Jesus and they stopped worshiping the emperor, they were seen as political threats to the emperor. They were atheists. They were without gods, at least the Roman emperor who was the supreme god. Further, not only because of the political threat they posed, but there was great fear regarding just the domestic and economic threat of Christians. Foundational to the Roman economy was the household unit. And in each household, there would be the biological family, but there would also be kind of the workforce. There would be household servants or household slaves. And there certainly were slaves in this construct that were maltreated and and not well cared for. But additionally, and contrary to what we're used to in American history, many, many of these slaves were well-treated and even rose to the status of doctors or lawyers or teachers inside their own household unit. And what was feared was not only were Christians going to be a political threat, not worshiping the emperor, but they would also be an economic threat. That when these Christians became converted to Jesus, they would stop serving their masters and walk away from their careers. Christianity was feared in the early sense that these atheists were actually anarchists. And in 1 Peter, Peter's writing to Christians just like this, who are strangers and sojourners in their own culture because of a primary theme we've seen in 1 Peter so far, they are born again. They live in a culture they've always lived in, but they are made entirely new by the gospel of Jesus, which saves them. And he's writing to these new believers, and what he's after primarily in this book is their public conduct. He's after the way they act amongst themselves and the way they act in public. So how do these Christians live as his favorite term, elect exiles, sojourners, or strangers, How do they live belonging to God through faith in Jesus Christ, but also living in a broken world? How did Peter imagine his fledgling group of churches to interact with a government that was becoming increasingly hostile and a workplace that was getting increasingly anxious regarding their conversion? I saw a political cartoon this week which showed uh, some doctors and some scientists pushing this big rock up a hill. And then on the other side was this little man pushing the rock back down. And the little man was just labeled as evangelicals. And just as Peter has done throughout this book, he assumes a tension in this text. And the tension is this. Christians, by nature of their conversion, will be characterized. They will be called names. They will be made little of by society, whether it's in the first century as atheistic cannibals 
or whether it's in the 21st century as naive and foolish evangelicals. But the point we see today in 1 Peter is that if we are caricatured, if we are mocked, if we are persecuted, we should make sure that it is for things which are fundamentally Christian. If we're to be scorned, let us be scorned for our gospel characteristics. If we're going to be mocked, let it be being mocked for being obedient to King Jesus in all things. Because when it comes to making sense of the authority structures in this world, we as Christians must first understand the authority structure that the gospel puts us in. That's being in authority or being under God's authority. That's the way that makes sense of these competing influences of worldly authorities and authority that belongs to God. To belong to God is to have a new authority in your life, a new supreme authority in your life. But that new authority helps us understand how we interact with old authorities. And the big point we're going to see today in 1 Peter 2 in the verses uh, Daniel just read for us is this, is that submission to God's authority is what makes sense of submission and suffering under the world's authorities. Submission to God's authority is what makes sense of submission and suffering under the world's authorities. And we're going to see this in three parts. First, we're going to see submission to God by obeying our government. Then we're going to see submission to God in mistreatment. And then lastly, we're going to see submission to God by entrusting ourselves to Jesus. I must confess that when we started working through the book of 1 Peter, I didn't imagine this book to be as timely or as hotly debated as it is today. Preaching this text six months ago, uh, I don't think many of us would bat an eye at this text, and yet here we are. Our nation is clamoring over how we're to respond to our government and its reactions to COVID-19. Even today, our gathering is shaped by laws concerning COVID-19 in Montana. There are other uh, churches, many, many, many churches in our country who cannot meet due to similar laws in their own states. But I want to make it clear today that the only political agenda Peter makes is the agenda of the people of the cross. The only agenda he's trying to advance is the agenda of Christianity. He is not making a political point. He's making a Christian point. When it comes to our discussions on politics, we naturally tend to think more narrowly. And it's here, under us thinking more narrowly in terms of our political presuppositions, that we need to remind ourselves of where we are in Peter's letter. We're almost halfway through. And leading up to this point, Peter has been hammering on us this new identity we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knows if we're to understand this text rightly, we must first start with our identity as being nothing more than ransomed children of God. Before we think politically on anything, we think theologically on how Jesus has saved us through his own blood. How he has made us new according to a living and abiding word. And because of this, because of the eternal hope, because our future is not in doubt. Now he says, let's look at places where we're going to encounter doubt. Let's look at places where the future might not be as clear. And this is so important for us to understand as the church because our world wrestles with how, we, how two people who disagree on, theology, or on politics or the application of politics can be friends. It really doesn't have a construct for that. But the Christian church ought to be a place where we see the ransoming, soul-winning, unifying work of Christ as far greater of a force to bind than politics is to divide. And my hope is that this is true in our church. That when we talk about these things, we understand that what Peter is giving today are not finite details. He's giving broad principles. And as we talk with others, and as more specific situations come, we might have differences on follow-up principles, but the broad principle of what Jesus has done is what shapes the Christian church. And what shapes the Christian church should be what unites the Christian church, even when there are differences in terms of where the application comes politically. In a world where politics is all we hear of, I want us to consider this. How many of you have checked social media lately? Great. How many of you check it and then you have identity crises 7,000 times over the course of scrolling for like two minutes? What do we do? How do we act? Is there a way forward? Consider a verse we looked at in our Bible study group on Wednesday, Proverbs 16, verse 20. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord.
The truth is, the wonderful truth of this scripture is that it was written above culture. It was not written for 21st century culture. It was not written for a 1st century culture. It was not written for an ancient Near East culture. It was written for God's people of all time, carried on by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, which means that as our cultures throughout history present areas of grayness, we know we have a sure and steady foundation in humility to his word to make decisions which honor God and love others. And so to this effort, we're going to turn at our first point today, which is submission to God by obeying our government. And in looking at this passage, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three things specifically. First, I want to give thought to God's word. I want us to look at what God's word is saying and what is clear. And then I want us to look at the witness from church history. Because we're going to see in church history people who took the clear commands of God and lived them out in gray areas of history. And we're going to find those to be encouraging and helpful to us. And then lastly, we're going to land just in, this is all point one, so bear with me. In point one, we're going to land by looking at what Peter looks at, which is how your salvation impacts the way we live as creatures in a political world. So we're going to look at God's word, we're going to look at Christian history, and then we're going to look at our own salvation. So first, let's submit ourselves to what's clear in Scripture. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so your translators here in verse 13 provide a word. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. The word they put in there is institution. It's actually in the Greek, just creation, human creation. And they rightly put an institution because right after this, Peter defines what he means. He's talking about emperors and governors. But here in this passage where Peter is talking specifically about government, he makes the point to open it up by saying, be subject to every human creation. Why does he do that? He does it for two reasons. First, he's reminding and reinforcing to his churches that human government is just that, human. The emperor, the president, the dictator, the senate, the supreme court, it's not God. And it shouldn't be treated as such. And yet, secondly, the one true living God is saying to submit to these places of human government. Why? Peter gives a reason. Because they seek to police what is wrong and protect what is good. This is something the Bible talks about a lot as a sort of common grace. This is what actually the Bible calls you to pray for, for your government. Many of us have posted, I'm sure, about the government. How many of us have prayed for our government? It's convicting to me to think about, because prior to this morning, I can say zero. But look at what he tells us to do in 1 Timothy 2. First then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Four weeks ago now, we had to make decisions as to if this church would open and what it would look like. We had to make decisions for, you know, the several hundred people who come here. And it was burdensome for all of our elders. I do not envy any of our politicians to make the decisions they have to make right now. And we should see them first and foremost, not as political talking points, but as people who are charged by God to make good decisions, but just like you, are weak and finite. May we be people who pray for them, who pray for their wisdom, who pray for the common grace, because here's the truth. Do all governments protect what is good and police what is wrong perfectly? No, they do not do that. And yet, is it true that even the most corrupt government 
has the ability to refrain sin, even if that's just prohibiting open murder? Yes. But wherever sin is limited, it is only by the grace of God that we are not as sinful as we could be. That is not apart from God's hands. And we might say, well, this can't, this is a gradient. Right? What happens when the governments are not doing this? What is our response to it? And there's tension here. But what I want to say is Peter, who is writing this, is going to be Peter who is killed by his government. Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, spent his life in government-sponsored prisons. They know better than we know the weight of governments that do not meet this demand. And yet... Look at what Paul himself says, Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pray to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owned, revenue to whom revenue is owned, respect to whom respect is owned, honor to whom honor is owned. Paul is not writing to a Constantine Christianity. He is writing to a government which has up until this point been violently against him. This is what he says. Now, there's all sorts of things in this text we could talk about, and we're not going to. We're looking at the broad principles of what this is saying today. First Timothy, he also says this, or excuse me, Titus 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for good work, to speak of no one, to avoid, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Why? Why are we to do this? Paul is writing to Titus. He's encouraging his young disciple in how he is to lead the church. Why is he to do this? Why is he to plead for this public conduct? For we ourselves were once foolish. What's the assumption? Probably that Titus' governments are foolish. We were once disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in us by righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Why are we to act differently? Because God came to us when we were different. Now let's be clear here. I want to talk about what's not here, and this is important for us to understand. Neither Paul nor Peter describe what disobedience to the government looks like. Why? Because central to their message is that God is the supreme authority in all things. So if a human government tells you to do what God prohibits or prohibits something which God commands, you're to obey God and not man. Why do they not include that? Because that is the most blanket, obvious assessment they could ever make. God is king. God is authority. In fact, they don't spend a lot of time talking about civil disobedience because there's no construct for civil disobedience. There's only spiritual obedience. Everything you do is done in obedience to God. That means if it were to resist your government, it better be in obedience to God. Otherwise, you have no legs to stand on. Remember, the same Paul who penned pleas for obedience in Romans and in Titus is the same Paul who refused to stop preaching the gospel under an imperial order. Yet, the same Paul who refused to stop preaching the gospel under an imperial order was the same Paul who went on trial, modeled grace, respect, and winsome gospel witness to those who were trying to kill him. It is not hard in Scripture 
to see that when not in disobedience to God, Christians are called to respectfully submit to their government. Now, this doesn't exclude lobbying for proper treatment, fighting for justice. This doesn't mean that we can't use in America specifically the constitutional liberties we have to appeal and to make changes that our government has afforded to us, but it does dictate our posture when we take those stands, our posture both towards those who are in authority and our posture towards God. I was just speaking yesterday with pastors in Washington And in Washington, churches can't open now, and churches can't even open in phase two, and much of the rest of culture can. And they were wondering, not arrogantly, humbly, what it might look like for them. And is it justifiable to civilly disobey man, to spiritually obey God? There wasn't a triumphalism. There wasn't a disrespect. There was a reverence that they know that they are resisting people whom God has put over them, and yet their authority is ultimately God. And this is where church history is so helpful for us because we often get so blinded by our own culture and our own times that when we read things like this, we think that they don't apply to us in the same way. But church history, one, it don't neglect the context of Peter and Paul. But church history, what it does, I like to say, it lifts us up over the dashboard of our own life to see how this gray area has been lived out in a way that honors God and honors men. Church history lifts us up so we can see more clearly. In the 16th century, William Tyndale was run out of England for translating the Bible into English, which was prohibited by the government at the time. But Tyndale knew he couldn't obey the government's orders to stop translating Scripture because for him it was the ministry of evangelization given to him by God that he should not be quiet in proclaiming the gospel to others. And so Tyndale fled England and was in hiding on mainland Europe. And while he was there, he wrote a letter to the English government. And I want you to note his posture towards God and his government. He says this, I assure you, if it would stand with the king's most glorious pleasure to grant only a simple text of the scripture to be put forth among his people, be it of the translation of whatever persons, however shall please his majesty, I shall immediately make faithful promise to never write more, nor abide two days in these parts after the same, but immediately to return unto his realm and to most humbly submit myself at the feet of his royal majesty, offering my body to suffer what pain or torture, yea, what death his grace will, so this be obtained." John Bunyan was imprisoned in the 17th century for, quote, preaching without a license. During those 12 years, he wrote one of the most famous metaphors or allegories in Pilgrim's Progress. And reflecting on this imprisonment, he said that this is a unique paradox, that I would be grateful to God for men whom I wish were not in the position whom God, which God gave them. Yet he concludes by saying this, I will then love them, bless them, pray for them, and do them good. I speak now of the men that hurt me, as was hinted afore. I will do this thus because it is good to do so. Or consider Polycarp, the first century pastor, not the Pokemon, (laughs) whose life perhaps overlapped with Paul, Himself, or Peter himself here. He was on the run from Rome because of his faith and was hiding on a farm, and the Roman authorities found him. And the church uh, historian Eusebius records this account, and I want you to notice again his posture. Eusebius says this, and when he, that's Polycarp, learned that they were present, as the account says, he went down and spoke with them with a very cheerful and gentle countenance. He did not hesitate but immediately gave orders that a table should be spread for them. Then he invited them to partake of a bounteous meal and asked them one hour that he might pray undisturbed. When they had given permission, he stood up and prayed, being full of the grace of the Lord, so that those who were present heard him praying were amazed. And many of them now repented that such a venerable and godly old man was about to be put to death. 
Are there times when Christians are called to obey God by disobeying the government? Yes. But in those moments, we are not to be seen as mere dissenters to authority, but instead we will be seen as men and women under authority. Loyalists to King Jesus in all his rule contains in life, in liberty, and in action. This is what Peter means in verse 15 when he says, it is the will of God that, you, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Throughout history, governments have caused great difficulty for the church. And in those times, gospel loyalists like you and I have been called all sorts of names and caricatured to the nth degree. Violent, incestuous, cannibalistic, anarchist. But it is in our conduct towards those who wish ill towards us that they will see no ill will in our hearts, but instead they will see a firm commitment to the unending love of Jesus in public. Paul, at the end of his life, is, is being on trial. And he begins to preach the gospel to the judge who's sitting over him. The judge says, what, do you think I'm going to get saved? And he says, no. I want not only you, but everyone who's here to be saved. Do we dissent like Paul? When people see us at the grocery store, I was filling up propane yesterday. I did not walk into this. I was not looking for a sermon illustration. And here we go talking about the government. Does the winsome nature of the gospel and the hard decisions of life in a broken world shine through? When you consider your own attitude, is what is seen a passion for the gospel and a love for the lost? Or is it a contemptuous heart towards those whom God himself has placed over you? Liberty is a wonderful thing, but liberty is not God. And yet... Look at how Peter talks about your salvation in verses 16 through 17. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So here in case the tone of Paul's text is missed, he fires four imperatives. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. If you want a summary of Christian political thought, here it is. And what does this follow? The liberty the Christian has because of faith. Where Jesus has freed you from all things, you are free from all things, which means most ultimately for the Christian, freedom from sin. If we are not careful, we can find things which the government demands, and I mean demands, I mean in terms of laws, of legislation, things which they demand, which are not prohibited or regulated by God himself, and we can, in a sort of arrogance, refuse to submit to such things on grounds of our own liberty. But Peter actually makes the exact opposite point here, doesn't he? That it is precisely a sign of liberty and freedom to obey the government because you have been freed from sin. If it is a sin to disobey the government, which is requiring something which is fine according to God's standards or not prohibited by his divine decree, and if we are to refuse that by sinning, you are showing yourself as being the one in submission, not the one who is free. But a Christian is set at liberty from sin. You are free for the first time to choose to not have to sin, to find your salvation. Why? Because Jesus showed us sin brings no salvation. We now get to see that it's in the gospel our greatest threat is not unjust treatment by the government, but our just punishment of death for the sins that we incurred. In Jesus, we've been delivered from the greatest of all enemies and delivered eternally. So that when we encounter even lesser enemies, we can make actions not in fear of them, but in fear of God. You see, in this room, there are people stuck in fear, and there are people stuck in frustration, but Peter holds us to us faithfulness in the gospel. That we can move forward in a third way. A way that honors both sides of the party and accepts fearlessly what God may bring.
And Peter's summary is that you are to act as free men because you are men in bondage. Servants of God. Slaves of God. It's in this vein that Peter transitions away from specific government authority to broadly addressing authority in almost any place in culture. And this is our second point today. And this is submission to God in mistreatment. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20 says this. And so this is where you get to see a little bit of the context of the persecution Peter's church is going. At this point, the imperial persecution is not really there yet. Rome doesn't quite know what to do, but most of the persecution is coming socially in terms of their jobs, their friends, their co-workers. And this is what he says in verses 18 through 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, if you endure but if you do good and suffer for it, you, you, but if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. And this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Peter here is transitioning. He's still talking about servants, but the word he uses is that of like a household servant, a household slave. But in verse 16, he's broadened this to really apply to all people when he says that all Christians are servants or slaves of God. Just because you've been freed by Jesus doesn't mean your freedom is used to justify disobedience or disrespect where you still find yourself under the authority of humans. For Peter's audience, he's saying, specifically for them, just because you've been ransomed by King Jesus, because he is now your exclusive authority, does not mean you get to show disrespect to those who don't know Jesus, but who are still in authority over you. Now, for modern readers, this applies almost anywhere we encounter authority structures in our world, but perhaps most closely when it comes to your work. But what we know here, regardless of the sphere, is that Paul is like a dog with a bone when it comes to your conduct in public. He is unwilling to relent that your salvation changes the way you interact in a way which is gospel-centered in the marketplace. And that includes how you show respect to those who are over you when they are noble and good and when they are ruthless and unjust, even morally debased. In this passage, Peter doesn't spend a lot of time defining the specific reason why persecution is happening. What he simply says is this, is that you Christians are to continue to do good even when you are treated in unjust or harsh ways. There's a big truth here. I want to read this truth again, 19 through 20. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The truth Peter assumes is that his readers are suffering for good conduct, not for evil conduct. For what is righteous, not what is unrighteous. And we can't neglect this. I think largely partly because America has been wonderfully free of much systemic persecution. I've seen, I've heard, I've engaged with specific Christians who come saying they aren't fully accepted at work because they're Christian. Their coworkers don't invite them to hang out with them because they're Christian. They encounter trials in school because they're Christian. And I don't want to deny the fact that wicked people will do wicked things. And in places in our culture, this is true. And in places across the globe, this is even more true. But I also know that many of those people whom I've talked with, many of those stories I've heard, people are not encountering interpersonal suffering or strife because they're Christian. They're suffering interpersonal strife and discomfort because they're really bad employees. They really aren't kind to their coworkers. But instead, they take that, and in arrogance, they say, this is because I'm a Christian. So what do we do with this? We do what Peter's calling us to do. We assess the nature of those times of suffering. We don't assume that all of it is unjust. Instead, you examine it. Why am I suffering? Why am I being treated this way? And there's two things you should do. First, if you look and you're suffering for doing good, you should endure. 
Or if you're suffering for what is sinful, you should realize it's fruit, fruitless. It's silly. It's foolish. And you should repent. Those are the two things. And, and good talks to have with your community group when you encounter things like this. Why am I being treated as this? And there are two options the Bible gives. Repent. Go and show the gospel to those whom you've sinned against by not being a good friend, by not being a good employee, and repent. Or you say, like Martin Luther when he was on trial, here I stand and I could do no other. You continue to do good. And this is where when it comes to enduring, Peter begins to talk about the reward language that comes for it. He says, be mindful of God. No one is called to endure suffering like a mindless sheep. You are called to endure suffering mindful of God. He says it's no credit when you suffer for sin. That's obvious. But the assumption then is it is of some credit. It is of some glory. It is of some value if you suffer for doing what is good. In fact, twice he calls it a gracious thing. And literally the word he uses is just grace. It is grace that you would suffer like this. Why? Why is it a grace? How many of you, if I said... Coming in here, today I want you to have grace. How many of you would say, I'd like some of that? How many of you would be upset if I say, great, go suffer? And this is what Peter's saying. But it's a grace because it is a beautiful thing in the sight of God. We consider God and not our own comforts. You will encounter bosses, managers, authority figures in your life who are petty and broken. But Peter says in those instances, work respectfully for them. Don't work begrudgingly. Don't work as some other coworker would. Work to the best of your ability. Why? Not because we want to shame them and show them how much morally superior we are, but because we want to please God in all things. And in pleasing God, we want to enjoy God in all things. When Peter talks about grace and credit here, he's really talking about rewards. And as we work in a less than just climate, we're reminded of all the rewards we have in the gospel. Hasn't this been what Peter's been after in this text? The same John Bunyan, who was in prison for 12 years, says this, Suppose some men in authority are to act beyond a measure and cruelly. What? Can no good thing come to us out of this? Do not even such bitter things to the flesh tend to awaken Christians to faith and prayer, to a sight of the emptiness of the world, to the fickleness of its best rewards. By these things, doesn't God often call our sins to remembrance and provoke us to changed living? How then can we be offended at things by which we reap so much good and at things God makes so profitable for us? We must learn to see the good in that which others can see none. Don't we see how unique the Christian reward is in all of human history? No one can take this goodness away. That's why Paul and Peter, though persecuted, are praising God constantly because it's reminding them of everything this world can't provide and all the things that Jesus has already provided. We are to endure unjust treatment for the sake of righteousness because we know that such events remind us more and more of the goodness we have in Jesus Christ. That is for your credit. The greatest good in this world is that you are reminded more and more of Jesus' wonderful sacrifice for you and his immense love poured out for you. This doesn't mean that like Stoics or fatalists we seek out suffering, but we understand what Peter's going to talk about in verse 23 but there are times when we are called to suffer, called to suffer for our own good, that we might taste the goodness of God and that the world might see the goodness of God. You see, Peter is talking about tasting in this part. And sometimes, mistreatment on account of your good conduct is where we learn to taste the gospel in ways comfort never could provide. Where we learn to rely on things that popularity and acceptance by culture might make us numb to. And this is where Peter goes with our last point today. Submitting to God by entrusting ourselves to Jesus. Read with me verse 21 through 25. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So Peter here says that Christ is your example in suffering. And the word he uses there is this word that teachers would use when they're teaching their kids their letters. It's to trace. My daughter's doing this right now. We have a little whiteboard page with numbers and letters on it, and she's to go trace over those so that she might learn how to write them on her own. So it is learning to see and trace the suffering of Jesus that you begin to learn the substance of your suffering as well. And here Peter quotes from Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant, to show the posture our Lord had, who was in all authority and yet subjected to death. Let's not forget, it was a Jesus who submitted himself to an unjust hand by a Roman governor who is also calling us to obey our own governors and masters even when they might tend to cause us harm. And Peter builds here on the work of Jesus in three ways, which are meant to encourage us as we seek to live this out in a broken world. First, we see that Jesus did not revile, sin, lie, slander, or try to sin when he was oppressed. Why? Peter tells us. He trusted him who judges justly. You see, Jesus, even in his loving mercy, knew that as he marched towards that cross, as men spat on him, struck him, scorned him, he knew that all sinners will one day have to answer to this just judge. And that endured him. It endured him to know that he did not have to sin for his own vindication, but that even the Son of God trusted in God the Father to judge to each man according to his sin. You see, it's always a struggle for us to respond in such ways to those around us if we, too, fail to entrust ourselves to a God like this. How easy is it for us to gossip with our coworkers, slander those who are in authority, foster feelings of hate? But those can only be put to death when we realize that even though those things might be evil and wicked and unjust, it is only God who satisfies that. It is only God who will bring back and judge those who sin against, but it is also only God who has freed broken sinners like us. And if there's grace for us, it might even be that there's grace for them. Secondly, this is where Peter goes to show this wonderful fruit of Jesus' trust in verse 24. He himself bore our sin and his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Because Jesus was treated unjustly on the cross, we who stood justly condemned are freed from sin. We are saved by a divine act of injustice. He took your sin. Not fair. His liberty was violated. Not fair. And yet, we in those moments... When we are treating, treated unjustly, we do not begin to think that injustice is normal. No, it has no place in God's kingdom. But what we begin to trust is that it was in the greatest act of injustice that it worked for our good on the cross. And perhaps so too in this act of injustice, God might also be working for our good. He has given us a track record that because Jesus on the cross has saved us, we know that anything else is nothing compared to that. That Jesus has ransomed us. He took our sin and now we have a freedom. What is this freedom for? Why is this so essential? Why must we be mindful of God when it comes to our politics and to our persecution and to stress in the workplace? Because the freedom of Jesus' costly love on the cross produces what? That we might freely die to sin and live to righteousness. We can't handle this tension unless we see the tension on the cross. 
It will always confuse us. Thinking of the theology of our own flesh, we will never be able to withstand any of this, but thinking of the theology of glory on the cross, we can endure. Gospel conduct in all places is the fruit of liberty rooted in the blood of Jesus. But make no mistake, as you live out this life of liberty, you will encounter places where culture pinches. You will encounter pressures. There'll be times where obedience to your government or in your workplace will be costly. And Lord willing, there might be times where your disobedience to those things might be even more costly, such as Polycarp, such as Peter. And yet, thirdly, look at the comfort we have in our redemption. Verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Brothers and sisters, none of your suffering, if for the sake of good conduct in the gospel, is for nothing. Because Jesus' suffering mattered for you, all of our suffering matters because of the gospel. We can put up with mistreatments because by his wounds we have been healed. We can handle feeling like fugitives on the run, having no place to call home in this culture. But in Jesus, we've been returned to our shepherd. We can handle false caricatures and unjust treatment because we are not those without a trusted authority. For we come to King Jesus, the overseer and ruler of our souls. Don't you see here that Peter holds out two wonderful truths when it comes to our conduct in places that pinch culturally. First, in such places, when we continue to do good, we are reminded all the more of the Jesus who saves us, frees us, and comforts us. We're reminded all the more. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? You will be one day be in a government where no one will dare post anything bad on Facebook. <laughs> there will be nothing to critique. It will be flourishing. It will be perfection. It will be because of the costly love of Christ to purchase that for you. But then secondly, we're reminded that in these times, our witness in suffering is a picture of the gospel to the world. This is what Paul says, it's the filling up of the afflictions of Christ. Not that Christ's sacrifice lacked, but that there was only a select group of people who historically saw Jesus suffer, but by God's grace, Everybody since then has gotten the privilege of watching the church suffer. And when it comes to our Christian witness, bear no mistake, there is nothing that screams the glory of the gospel more than gospel Christians showing the costly call of faith. In Korea in 1948, there was a pastor named Yang, Son, Yang Wan Sun. He had two older boys, both who were killed uh, by an insurrectionist communist band who killed them because of their faith. Once the insurrection was put down, the gunman was identified, and his own execution was scheduled. But it was actually Pastor Son who called for a stay of execution. And he and his only remaining child went to the courts, and they pleaded that this man, whose name was Kai Soon, that he would be released under one condition, that Pastor Son be allowed to adopt Kai Soon into his family. And the courts allowed it. And it was in the home of the man whose sons he murdered that Kaisen came to know Jesus Christ. Because of the witness of the response to suffering, Kaisen saw his violations of liberty through the lens of the cross. He said... I see a connection here. And he chose to love what the world would call him to loathe. What man can do that besides a man whose heart has been liberated by the gospel? 
What might our conduct look like when we respectfully endure whatever consequences the gospel calls us to in spiritual obedience? And we say, but look at my Jesus. Look at what he incurred for me. If this is what he calls me to now, it is a gracious thing. May we seek to live out this text with gospel wisdom because we need it. I don't want to assume that leaving here, all the things that we'll, you'll encounter in this current political climate will just make sense for you. But I want you to know that the gospel makes a way forward. And because of what Jesus has done, we have an example and we have an enduring hope that comforts us and Lord willing, will save others. Let's pray. Lord, there's not much which triggers our desire for justice like politics. And Lord, remind us that this trigger exists because justice is a good thing. Justice is something that we have as created in your image of God because we're made in the image of a God who is just. And yet, Lord, because you set forth in love and justice to send your son who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, our lens on justice is shifted according to the prism of justice in Jesus. So what I pray specifically for our church, for our words, for our interaction, for our postures, for our hearts. I pray that in all these things, we live as people who are free. Wonderfully so. I pray that we can loose the shackles of fear and understand that because of King Jesus, we do not need to have worldly fear, either of diseases, of politicians, but we move forward with our responsibility to obey God and love others in all things. We love you, Jesus. We pray you help us to walk this out because you have walked it out on a far greater scale, facing far greater punishment than we could ever face by our government. We pray this in your name. Amen.